From the National Race and Capitalism Project, welcome to season four of New Dawn, a podcast focusing on the intersection of race and capitalism, its theories, geographies, and histories, with your host, Michael Dawson. episode of New Dawn features a social and political philosopher, Charles Mills. So thank you for coming on. Welcome to the New Dawn podcast. How have you been? Not too bad. Keeping busy. And is the transition going well? Yes, absolutely. Excellent. So we have a number of questions we want to go through and obviously we can go explore whatever you wish to explore at any point. But let's start about thinking your career is extraordinary and we've a couple of us have been diving into your work going uh-huh. back to the 1980s. Okay. <laughs> okay, that's where all that old stuff came from. Yeah. I was wondering about that. Yeah, so we've, we've tried to keep, go from the 80s until, you, you know, your, the work that's been most recently published. And part of it is, was, was a, re, a result of, you know, reading some of your autobiographical essays yes, as, sure. as, as well. And I don't think I'll be surprising anybody by saying that we're approximately the same age, and so... I was going through some of the same type of transitions in this country, which of You're course, seen. Yes, of we course. have different experiences as young men growing up with respect to race. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. So, and so I think it led to slightly the U.S. and Canadian, which was part of your experience, and Jamaican movements all having very different flavors. Of course. Although all dealing with, I think we both would agree with global white supremacy. Sure. And we can argue about to what degree dealing with capitalism as well. So your early work really does focus quite a bit. Well, first of all, it draws from a Marxist perspective. Yes, absolutely. And you move away from that. And I think there's a wonderful quote from Amé Sasser is that I'm not interested in what black people can do for communism. I'm interested about what communism can do for black people. Of course, sure. And I think that motivated a lot of black people who were moving toward you know, many versions of Marxism, but you did move away from class-based accounts of race. Why, what, what prompted that move? Yes, absolutely. Okay, so I did my dissertation on Marxism at the University of Toronto, and I certainly thought of myself theoretically as a Marxist in the early years following my graduation with a PhD. So my putting aside, or so to speak, my bracketing of a specifically historical materialist approach was a result of a number of factors. So one, and, and this term you must recall was the 1980s, one was the decline, or you could say indeed the collapse of the left in the period, sort of late 80s onward, so that one found oneself talking to an audience small to non-existent. And there's a story I've told in more than one autobiographical essay, which I'll um, repeat here. So in 1994, mm-hmm. I was on the planning committee for a meeting of the American Philosophical Association Central Division, and I pushed on it for a market socialism panel. And then at the conference, since after all, I pushed for this panel, so I should go and see how it's doing. So I wandered over to the panel room, and what do I see? I see four panelists, and I see a single audience member. So you could say that was a kind of enlightening moment. <laughs> so, I think we've had a few, I yes. think a lot of us have that moment. Yes, yes, yes. So, and then reinforcing this as somebody who's non-American, is that I had come to the U.S. to work. Originally, I'm Jamaican. I had my page in Canada. 
So very sort of in a different racial dynamics. And the realization after some time in the U.S., which of course all black Americans know because you guys grew up with it, race is central to the foundation of the country. So any adequate theorization of U.S. social dynamics needs to acknowledge this. And the Marxism I had learned, so to speak, in grad school up in Canada was not really up to that job. So there are sort of those sets of factors. And then you also have to take into account my distinct disciplinary perspective. Because I'm not coming at this as a sociologist, as a political science scientist, somebody in the social sciences, but as a philosopher. So for me, the sort of crucial theoretical insight was recognition of the sort of reality of white supremacy and sort of need to name white supremacy. And then what I began to felt is that a philosophical investigation, sort of in a focus on my distinct disciplinary perspective, need not take a stand, I felt, on many of the causal questions that, let's say, political scientists or, or sociologists would have to. In some cases, you know, you could say it would be necessary to commit yourself to a particular sociological explanation of the origins of white supremacy, but not all. So in my case, as a philosopher, a lot of my work has focused on the moral implications of the system, how it denies equal personhood to people of color, and what question this raises for the issues of social justice. And I felt that you could explore these issues in the normative sphere without getting into competing social scientific theoretical disputes. Now, admittedly, one point will be that the truth or falsehood of these different explanations might have implications for how likely these social justice prescriptions are going to be realized. Mm -hmm. So there's sort of a question of actually sort of getting this stuff out in the world and having to have an effect. You could say that there clearly, you know, the different theories of race would make a difference. But in a sort of, in a strict and limited sort of normative sense, I thought that, you know, you could bracket certain questions to a large extent. And then another point is that historically, Marxism, or in a historical materialism, we want to sort of call it that, has been weak on these issues of morality and justice. Marx's own writings are somewhat contradictory in that they're infused with a sense of moral outrage. I mean, you read Capital, for example, and it's clear, you know, how deeply offended he is by the system, he uses language, you know, sort of, you know, it's like a vampire sucking people's blood. So in the one sense, there seems to be this sort of, you know, moral commitment. But if you look at his explicit statements, he's pretty dismissive about morality, he's pretty dismissive about justice, and to the extent that, you know, you had the sort of tail end in the 80s of um, what was then called analytical Marxism. So looking at Marxism from an analytical point of view, there was a debate in the literature, what was Marx's position on justice? And there are quite a few people who said Marx does not have a theory of justice and historical materialism cannot, in fact, accommodate such a theory. So since I, as a philosopher, was trying to engage with the social justice literature in recent years, and with the work of John Rawls in particular, you can see why I began to feel that I needed to be drawing on the resources of liberal theory rather than Marxism. And by contrast with Marxism, liberalism does not have a theory of history. Particular liberal theories, for Kant as a theory of history, arguably Hume as a theory of history, but there's no distinctive theory of history associated with liberalism as such, whereas historical materialism is a theory of history. 
So if you think of liberalism as primarily a set of norms and values about how people should be treated and how society should be structured, endorsing liberal values, in my opinion, does not commit you to saying, well, I have to buy into liberalism theory of history because I don't think liberalism has a theory of history. So that's why I think you sort of bracket the question of is historical materialism sort of best approach, sort of looking at these issues or not, if you're sort of focusing on the normative issue. And then one of the questions you asked, um, is there anybody in the field who's still sort of using this paradigm and speaking about philosophy is one I know best, two people would be John McClendon and Stephen Ferguson. And both of them consider themselves Marxist Leninists, so not just Marx, but Marxist Leninists, and they've written about race from this distinct perspective. And what do they have to say? Well, they're critical of people like, surprise, surprise, Charles Mills, who's Ah. trying to retrieve (laughs) liberalism because they say, you know, liberalism basically is hopeless for this task. And you need to put it in the context of capitalism. You need to sort of recognize it as a structure linked with, you know, bourgeois class interests and so forth. So it's been clearly the case that mainstream, at least in my opinion, and I'm on record about this, so this is not this is not a radical departure. That mainstream Marxism, both historically and in this, and in this period, have either poor or backwards analysis of race and, and white supremacy and racial oppression. And in fact, I've argued with colleagues, and this can be seen in some of your writings, for example, with Carol Pateman, that is. Says some, some Marxist approaches are very uncomfortable with trying to theorize and politically approach other systems of domination, whether it's white supremacy, patriarchy, etc. So, and you, you obviously know there's a but coming. So, sure. <laughs> so the but is a historical, and perhaps a heretical but, but certainly a historical but, which is that within the black radical tradition, broadly construed, there's always been a, a rejection of not always, but the dominant trends have been within black leftism taking race as central, taking white supremacy as central, whether in the U.S. or elsewhere. So whether it's someone like Amakal Cabral trying to understand Marxism in the context of African liberation or a number of organizations out of Detroit, Oakland, etc. in the 1970s, middle and late 1960s as well. Black Americans and West Indians in the Communist Party of the United States fighting tooth and nail for putting black liberation central. The, the black tradition has tried to adapt Marxism in a way that could deal with white supremacy and would name white supremacy in, yes. in, in many cases. And certainly you've written about Eric Williams, Oliver Cox, and many others. Sure. Uh, certainly Stuart Hall is a, is a contemporary. To what degree do you think that those efforts fell short? What were some of the strengths and weaknesses? In? Yes, sure. The problem is that once you feel the need to recognize white supremacy, and I'm completely agreement with you on this, of course, you then have a certain tension developing insofar as Marxist commitments are sort of standardly interpreted in the mainstream of the tradition. The overarching system is class society, which in the modern period means capitalism. And if you want to sort of recognize this sort of other system of white supremacy, then they have to sort of be sort of brought into the framework of capitalism. And the question is how you do that. 
And unfortunately, insofar as there has been a recognition of race in the sort of mainstream white Marxist tradition, you tend to get a kind of reductionist approach. Because the fear is that in a sense, if you sort of give white supremacy its due, if you recognize its potency, it is going to jeopardize the foundational assumptions of Marxist theory. So because of that, there's been a reluctance to sort of recognize how deeply the modern world has been shaped, you know, by white racial domination. And in a sense that, you know, you cannot really sort of accommodate that within an orthodox Marxist framework. So the balancing act then for people who want to sort of see both capitalism and white supremacy as, you know, these sort of interacting systems, well, there's a sort of a socialist feminist model, which was popular before the sort of collapse of socialist feminism, dual systems theory. So you had patriarchy, you had capitalism, there's a sort of interaction between them, and somehow you have to theorize the complexities of the interaction. So, you know, one thought would be that you can make a sort of parallel move with respect to white supremacy and capitalism. The, the problem that I see in the work of um, people like Cox, for example, is that there's a tendency to sort of in the class reductionist approach and sort of not giving its due to the distinctive elements of race. And these distinctive elements are going to include, I think, things like, and this is going to sound weird, but here I'm a philosopher, the ontological in the sense that it really shapes your being. If you live in a racialized society, and if you're categorized as black, you're categorized as white, particularly in periods of extreme racism, like the U.S. under Jim Crow, like apartheid South Africa. Are this you is now. Oh well, <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm I'm going with the idea that we've made some progress, Michael. We're I going backwards. Too. <laughs> well, there's there absolutely that argument. Yes, I know. But if you sort of look at it from that point of view, you need to be able to understand how race sort of penetrates to one's beat, to in most of one's being. And this, of course, has been a central theme in the black radical tradition. If you think of Du Bois, and you know, he's talking about the veil and double consciousness. If you sort of go to the colonial world and Fanon, um, the famous line, the Negro is not a man. You have all these different attempts, which are basically sort of you know, looking at this distinctive ontological aspect of racial domination. And if you have a social ontology, as in mainstream Marxism, that sort of positions class as a fundamental social entities, it's going to be difficult to bring in these issues of personhood and race. And the whole, again, if you'll forgive me too much philosophy, the phenomenological aspect of racial subordination, which again, Du Bois, Fanon, various people sort of try to capture what is it like. If you think of a classic novel, black American novel like Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, you're trying to sort of capture the weirdness of the situation of being in a world with your fellow humans who don't recognize you as an equal human being. So I think there's a lot that we agree on there. And I think part of the differences might be disciplinary. Clearly, I would say that the ontological phenomenon and the phenomenological dimensions that you talked about are critical for understanding the status of African Americans in the United States. Certainly, it's critical for understanding, for example, the origins of the black feminist movement. Of course. Or not just being black, but being, being a woman yes. and how that how you how you re get represented and understood in the world. Those multiple systems <laughs> of oppression, yes. It's absolutely critical. I do think that throughout much of the 20th century, one of my critiques of the 
the black radical movement, which transformed in the late, late 1960s, early 1970s, middle 1970s, into a black communist movement, Robin Kelly talks about this quite, quite, quite a bit, was that it became class reductionist. Yes. I mean, and that certainly, I would argue, is what led many of the black cadre in the Communist Party to leave in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s was not just a recognition of the evils of Stalinism, but also a being fed up with yes. with class reductionism and the subordination of black interest sure. within, within the party. So there's no way to understand, I would say as a social scientist, the world without, and it's complexity today, without centering white supremacy. But I think one of the reasons that I got attracted as a young person to some form of black Marxism, even if we didn't call it that at the time, was the recognition there's also a lot of class conflict within, yes, <laughs> within U.S. black communities. Sure, sure. Given my family background, I was able to see that. <laughs> I see. Well, we must have a conversation about that sometime. Well, I mean, the short version is that, you know, I on one hand became a union organizer. On the other hand, my father was the nephew of one of the most powerful members of Congress in, in I had no idea, in, really. Yeah, William Dawson. I was, <laughs> for decades in the okay. United States. So uh, was what I would argue that my father was dedicated to maintaining the racial state. Okay. <laughs> as long as he had a good good place in it. As long as he had a good place in it. And, and not unusual, I think, was that it wasn't just the material interest, he actually bought it. He, he bought the ideological aspects of it, too. It wasn't like someone like... Ralph Bunch, who said to St. Clair Drake, allegedly according to St. Clair Drake, that the reason he gave up on proletarian revolution was not be, was because he realized it was going to happen in his time, so I might as well get mine. But <laughs> 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 well, in my father's case, he used to use an expression that also dates when he drank the Kool-Aid. <laughs> I see, I see. So he bought into that of a racial state predicated on black subordination, and he was cool with that, really? He was cool with that. Wow. It led to some interesting, my mother was not, so it led wow. to some very interesting, wow. it eventually led to my Lots mother. of family fights over the dinner table? <laughs> yeah. And one reason I had to go to school in California as a member, uh, as, an active, as an activist, but nobody was going to trust somebody with my last name in the city of Chicago. <laughs> You'd have had to rename yourself. Uh, they were, uh, the, the automatic assumption was that I was a police Asian and there would be good material reasons. I see, so. okay. But anecdotes aside, the, the, the basic point is, though, is that I did see not just ideological fights, but these ideological fights having material, having material sure. groundings. Of course. And that just like a Marxist analysis couldn't, a traditional Marxist analysis could not theorize or, or, or give political, sufficient political guidance in a world where white supremacy was dominant. It was also the case that I thought that many, uh, you know, literally thousands of, of uh, black and brown and Asian activists also believe that you also need some type of materialist economic analysis yes, that led to sure. some version, or at least Marx, let's say Marxist-inflected yes, uh, sure. analysis of society. One of the things I thought we were, that in retrospect as a scholar now, or that's very much in the rearview mirror, is that I didn't think that the U.S. left, including the black radical movement, had an adequate understanding of capitalism. Didn't okay. understand on the ground. Yes. Not just a theoretical uh, mm -hmm. understanding, but a 
social scientific analysis of what were the changes like financialization, mm -hmm. the increasing role of debt, both by the state and by individual mm -hmm. consumer at the consumer level, the shift from manufacturing to various both sure. low and high end service economy. We didn't have analysis of mm -hmm. that. A lot of our theories were in and strategies were based on some type of 1950 <laughs> manufacturing economy that maybe never existed, but certainly didn't exist by the time right. people yeah. were active. Of course. And there's still, I think, a paucity of understanding of the relationship between race and the economy today. So do you think, either philosophically or from just from the standpoint of political advancement, to what degree do we have to have an understanding of capitalism and where do you think that stays? Yes, so absolutely. Growth of the service sector, shift from manufacturing, productive capital, finance capital, the related flight of blue-collar jobs, the decline of unionization, and then the consolidation of plutocracy and what's been called the New Gilded Age, and the radically diminished prospects of class mobility, even for white workers, let alone people of color. Mm -hmm. So you have all these negative trends coalescing, so that whereas the U.S., used to represent a sharp contrast with European nations in respect of class mobility, for example, I believe we're now at or near the bottom with respect to other, other Western nations. And in terms of race, as you just said, we're witnessing the attempt you know, to turn the clock back to an earlier time to reverse the gains of the civil rights movement. So what you have is a situation where the changes within the capitalist system represent, I would suggest, both a threat and a potential, a, a positive potential. The threat of the exacerbation of social oppression, the sense that we need to sort of keep the lid on this and you know, we need to sort of roll things back to make sure that things got, do not get out of hand, given that it's going to be like this insofar as you know, the overall ecological climate, which, which we have mentioned, is going to sort of put strain on the system. So who is going to, to take the burden? We have to make sure that it's those at the bottom who sort of you know, feel the burden. And then the potential, given those realities, for a broad-based alliance. In other words, insofar as you now have a situation where in a white life expectancy, I mean, traditional, of course, as I don't have to tell you, as a social scientist, always a gap between a sort of mm -hmm. crucial white social indicators and black, so income, wealth, life expectancy, and now astonishing a decline in white life expectancies. The fact that the, the degree of underrepresentation of white working class people in elite academic institutions is just you know, astonishing. So it means that whereas previously whites would have been able to say, you know, this is a good deal. We've sort of signed on to this system of racial domination. We're not at the top of it, but at the bottom, we're getting all these goodies. So we're certainly not, you know, going to sort of align with any, any black people, sort of, you know, upset the boat. Now, I think, you know, you could say there's been a sort of, there's a better opportunity than in a long time for the possibility of a cross-racial class alliance um, to sort of bring about a more socially equitable system. So paying attention to the changes, the sort of evolution, the capitalism that we have now, 
really does become crucial because in part it could create openings that were not there in a previous time period. As I say, there are conflicting tendencies. The trade union movement would be a sort of natural ally, but the trade union movement is, what is it now, down to unionization, maybe 8%, 10% or so. So you know, it's a situation which, as I say, could go both ways. And what you need is for progressive activists to sort of you know, look at this situation and you know, try to forge a platform, both in terms of appeals to social justice and if you have materialist sympathies, as I do, in terms of appeal to group interests that can unify people across a broad range of social identities towards a transformative project. Putting my social science hat back on for a second, I agree with, 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 with much of what you just said. One of the, and I very much agree, as you know, I've written about the potentials and the dangers that we have in this period. One of the lessons we have out of political science, and I would argue there's precious few, but one of the ones that, I, that is very clear is that how you frame an argument is critical for social movements, yes, sure. etc. We have a lot of historical evidence, we have a lot of current evidence, both in terms of public, public opinion, in terms of social movements, etc. And I always look back at Weimar, and get Weimar Germany, and get very nervous when, of course. when I think about the current situation. So the, the one question that has often been, been fought out in the left in the United States is what type of framing is going to bring, bring out that, yes, that alliance. absolutely. Uh, and there's certainly those, I would point to Adolf Reed and some of his colleagues, for example, have argued very strongly, very passionately, that bringing up racial injustice undermines the ability to, to build that type of alliance. Sure. There's others, I can think, some of the young people, for example, movements like the movement, movement for Black Lives, VYP 100, the, the young progressive activists, youth activists in the, in the black movement over the last few years have argued that we are in favor of universal programs. We want to do, we want to have basic income, we want to have universal health care, we want to think about some type of, they didn't use what people would call today Green New Deal, but we also think that you can't bring about that unity without dealing with white supremacy explicitly. Either as a philosopher or just politically, what, what's, what's your take on that debate that's been, I would say, afflicted the left for the last over half a century? Yes, that's obviously, as you say, a crucial issue. And the kind of line I've been taking in my recent work is that what we need to do is to embed the racial justice project in a broader social pro uh, justice project and I use the verb embed to <coughs> emphasize the contrast with dissolving the racial justice project mm -hmm. into a supposedly all-inclusive, universal social justice project, which the white left in particular, to the extent that they have been willing to notice race historically, have traditionally done. And you know, the reason that's going to be so important is goes back, I mean, and it should be unsurprising because I mean, there's always going to be this kind of link with analysis and ultimate prescription. Racial oppression, to a certain extent, has a dynamic of its own. It's not just a sort of spin-off from class oppression. It has distinctive features. You need only mention segregation, disenfranchisement, political underrepresentation, the wealth gap, the prison industrial complex. Again, if you'll forgive me to wax in philosophical, if only briefly, institutional disrespect 
all that kind of things. So all of these injustices will have to be specifically targeted. And the danger of not sort of having them up front and central at the start is that, you know, if the deal is, okay, okay, yeah, you have your concerns, but let's get on board with Universal Pro and we'll deal with that later. The danger of that is that the later will never come. So that the, the, the platform, the program that's put forward is going to be one that you know, does not give due attention to these issues so that you know, if, fingers crossed, you, you do get into a situation where you know, we do have you know, the power to sort of start implementing and changing things, they're not there on the agenda at all. Because already you know, the idea was going to sort of sideline them to the, the later and the later never actually comes. So what you have to do is to be able to sort of combine, as I say, the sort of overarching issues that have a more class dimension, and those racial issues, which of course do have a class dimension so far as you know, people of color are disproportionate at the bottom of the, of the social ladder. But then in addition, the factors that afflict them in a way that do not afflict the white working class. And in terms of um, turning off the white working class, absolutely, there's also going to be that danger. But there's also the other danger of pandering to the white working class and basically forgetting the fact that even if they're not doing as well now relatively as they have been in the past, this is basically a decline from a previous position of illicit advantage. So it's not the case that you know they're complaining because, you know, their due was taken away from them. And, this is, and the whole point of the literature, which again is a social science, you'd be deep into of white racial resentment as a phenomenon. People had illicit advantages, even by the norms of a capitalist system, illicit advantages, and those advantages have been eroded, and this is what, in some cases, making them so angry. But if you pander to that kind of sentiment, and that kind of sensibility, then the danger is, as I say, that it's going to sort of manifest itself in the ultimate program put forward so that even if you know, progressives do get into power, you will then find that the pattern of pandering will continue. So this is where I think you know, it's really important you know, that you know, an educational program, in a sense, is going to be necessary for white workers, you know, for white people in general, but insofar as trying to appeal to white workers to recognize guys you need to understand you have been illicitly privileged in the social system historically in this country. And I would say it's not even this country. I think one of the ways we understand some of the current left debates in European leftist politics is whether we're going to have a green economy, whether we're going to have a social, social democratic economy for white Europeans only. <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> and yes. that is a, yes. some very prominent yes. social theorists are, yes. you know, who have sure. identified with the sure. left. Are promoting that view, or are we going to find a way that all of those who are in yes, this country, absolutely. many who have been here for decades, of and if not longer, will also share in the of project course. of providing a type of economy and society that's both sustainable and everyone can yes. flourish. And, and if I could just piggyback on that briefly, you sometimes get either explicitly stated or kind of implied in some green arguments that there's this literally, and that part is true, planetary crisis. Yeah. It's not the time to be highlighting differences. We just need to focus on this, which fails to recognize the fact that ecological crisis differentially affects the socially vulnerable, 
who will be people of color. So that Katrina is a classic example. Natural disaster in some sense, social disaster also very much so, and the people who are most vulnerable were precisely the racialized populations. So if you sort of ignore race in the sort of, say there was a sort of overarching planetary crisis, I mean, you just need to focus on that, it then means a pattern of differential impact on the racially vulnerable, that pattern is going to just be maintained. And as you know, due to the bad traffic around <laughs> around this neighborhood, United Nations is in, is in session now, and you know there's been a lot of focus on the United Nations part on climate change. And they and other uh, environmentalists over the last few weeks have been making this point quite clear. This is an aspect of global colonialism, yes. is that this, this, the regions of the world, so it's both within rich countries like the U.S. where mm -hmm. that's true, but, um, but if we think about it globally, those who have contributed the least to devastating the, yes. the, the planet asked, being asked to bear the heaviest burden. And will also bear the, are and will bear the heaviest burden if nothing's done. Yes. And for specifically Africa, but in general, parts of the world that were subject to intense colonialism and expropriation. Course, yes. And so, the way I've thought about it, to piggyback on what you just said, is both as a moral and a political question. So the, the moral aspect is that one is the right, it's the right thing to do, sure. but also it's moral in the sense that those who have bared the burden should not be asked to bear the Precisely. burden again. Precisely. The political side of it, though, at least thinking about the U.S., well, I would say you can probably make this argument globally as well, but certainly you can make about the U.S., is those who, are, who have historically, since the 1920s to, through today, who have been most open to socialism, who have been most likely to challenge the, the most severe injustices are people of color in the United yes, States. Sure. So to base a strategy on pairing to those who have been the least progressive aspects of a, prog I mean, of a progressive yes. coalition doesn't make a lot of sense of to me as a political sure. scientist or a former activist yeah, from a political sure. family. Sure. One of the, I think, positive aspects of drawing attention to climate change this is a political aspect, not so much a philosophical, moral question, is that it does provide the, the possibility for alliances across a much broader yes. spectrum than, we, than we've seen in a long time. But some philosophers, I'm thinking specifically of the recent work of Nancy Fraser, for example, would argue that it's hard to think about, well, some philosophers for a long time have argued, can you think about can you can you sustain liberal values? Can you fight white supremacy within a capitalist system? And some philosophers, like Fraser, arguing that can you deal with environmental expropriation within a, a capitalist framework? Part of your move toward away from having an account that integrated capitalism was due to what happened in the 80s and 90s. Yes. It, it was very attuned to the diminishing of support for socialism, what seemed to be a dominant worldwide victory philosophically and morally and politically of liberalism. But we're not in that moment anymore. Sure. So is it time to, I would argue politically certainly, but it's also time philosophically to reconsider an analysis of capitalism that takes into account white supremacy and these other systems of domination. Yes, yes, I, w I would certainly think it is. And part of you know what I have been trying to do, though, as I said, sort of, 
Marxist commitments have been more sort of bracketed and have sort of left them as open questions with the sort of need to recognize racial domination as a system and to understand that liberalism historically has been complicit with this system. And one of the very positive developments in political theory in your part of the world, for the, what is it, past 20, 20 years at least, and one of your colleagues, Jennifer Pitson and Sanka, Sanka Muto also, the sort of looking at how liberalism develops as an imperial theory. Liberalism develops not just with attention to the domestic European context, but with respect to the other parts of the world, because of course it's precisely the period that Europe Europeans are going out into the world and conquering other peoples. So that John Locke, Locke is a classic example, okay. British political theorist, and he has that whole section, chapter five of the second treatise, looking at property, looking at Native Americans, because of course that's the point. I mean, Locke is a guy who sort of actually in the colonial um, program helps write the Carolina Constitution and so forth. So. One of the things that I would like philosophers to do is to follow the example of political theorists and then ask the question, if liberalism as a political ideology, as the dominant political ideology of the modern period, has been so shaped in its development by the colonial project, how do we need to rethink liberalism from the point of view of justice? So if you think of political philosophy, a sort of more focused on the issue, the normative question of, of social justice, then the, than, than your sort of political theory is, then you want a social justice theory that is going to ask what are the inherited models we have for theorizing justice and how may they have been distorted by this imperial history. And one of the claims I've been trying to make in recent work is that, as I'm sure you know, even if it's not your sort of standard bedtime reading, John Rawls is you know, the most important so the political theory at his home. I could, there's no way for me to avoid it. You can't avoid it, okay. <laughs> oh, you can't avoid it, yes. So he's the, seen as the most important American political philosopher of the 20th century. And he's seen as reviving Anglo-American political philosophy, which was seen as moribund and boring in the 1950s, and of bringing justice into the picture as what would be a central theme. And this picture, which is a standard picture, which you know, is sort of you know, inscribed in textbooks and we teach to our students, is really deeply wrong in the following very simple and obvious sense, which is that if you look at the Afro-modern tradition, as it's now coming to be called, if you look going back to you know, early slave, ex-slaves, Kwabna Otoba Kuguano, and so forth, these folks are raising racial justice as a question from the very start. Mm -hmm. What are people like um, David Walker and Du Bois and Ida B. Wells, and what are they talking about? They're talking about justice. They're not using the roles and vocabulary, but you know, that's their central concern. United States or Frederick more, Douglass is a notable example. Yes, or, or more broadly, the, the Western world is shaped by white domination. This is unjust. It needs to be dealt with. So the Rawlsian narrative, which is very much the standard narrative in these circles, is exclusionary in a really deep way because it means you have all these folks who, in a sense, are in the Anglo-American tradition. Not that they're was, because of course they're black but in the sense that they're writing the English language. They're writing the English language, you know, they're engaging in a discourse often with, you know, white theorists themselves, and they're just completely Jim crow in terms of you know, the conceptual analysis of these issues. So it's really quite striking. You're now beginning to get a body of work 
um, companion volumes on Douglas Du Bois. This this um, big book coming out from University of Chicago Press, by, edited by Melvin Oliver and um, Jack. I have a piece in it. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Thirty essays on on, on um, different African Americans, yeah. some African Caribbean theorists. So a huge book. So it ought to be a landmark publication once it comes out. But there's a sense in which the recognition that should have been given to this tradition should not have to wait on a book like that. It should have been long overdue. In other words, if the central values of liberalism are freedom and equality, might not an ex-slave have something worthwhile to say about freedom? Might not somebody raised under Jim Crow, as Du Bois was, have something to say about equality? So when you think about, if you try to sort of detach yourself from your socialization, and frankly, it has taken me a long time to do this, so you know, I sort of recognize how efficiently that socialization was done in my case. It is really astonishing the extent to which mainstream white political philosophers and justice theorists have just excluded this body of literature a priori. So you take your line of descent, going back to John Stuart Mill and John Locke, and here in the United States, you have a bunch of people theorizing about justice, theorizing about racial justice in the English language, you don't worry about translation, and they're just completely marginalized. So this is one of the things that I think philosophy needs to do in following the example of political theorists. So political theorists for at least 20 years now have been sort of seeking the decolonization of the, of the canon, of the official story, political philosophers need to do that also. And one of the sort of most obvious and pressing manifestations of this should be re-theorizing justice so that racial justice is a central part of it. The United States is historically a white supremacist state. You could argue about whether it still is or not. There should be no argument among reasonable persons that it's historically a white supremacist state. How it's then in the can documents. It's in the founding documents. It's in the founding <laughs> documents. How then can you have a discourse on justice which blithely ignores us? Well, to just to state what is for you the obvious, but I think it took me a little while to understand because I was trying to avoid Rawls as long as I could. <laughs> it wasn't very long, but. One one of the moves that seems to be absolutely critical, and you've written about this, and I've learned quite a bit from it, is the total. If you make it, if you have a theory of justice as ahistorical, yes, you don't have to. That's a big help, you, right you don't there. Have to exclude anybody, right? Because yes. we're not talking yes, about yes, any yes. historical Absolutely, situation. yes. Let's just do it in a sort of timeless historical vacuum. Yes. If F, yes, yes, <laughs> which yes, yes. Is something we did yes. all the time. If F, yes, then yes, 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 yes. yes. How much resistance is there in philosophy to bringing history back in in a serious way so that these type of questions can be considered? Yes, we need to distinguish analytic from continental philosophy. Analytic is a sort of hegemonic strain. Continental philosophers tend to be sort of much more sympathetic. I mean, and Hegel is in a so much a, a crucial figure for the continental tradition. Or if you look at, at the contemporary scene, um, you know, Foucault and so forth. But in the analytic tradition, the emphasis has been the important thing should be the arguments. The arguments, the concepts, the logical inferences. And you know, the, the conceit has been that you can get at all of these in a way that extracts them out of history. So you know, let's not bother with the sort of messy historical um, underpinnings and surroundings. Let's just sort of you know, extract the crucial thing, which is the arguments. 
And that would not be so bad, except that the arguments that are extracted are basically a subset of the arguments that could be considered, and the extraction itself is done in a tendentious way. So even given the self-proclaimed mission of analytic philosophy and analytic political philosophy, you could say that the historical bias is right there, in that there's a decision not to deal with a certain kind of history. There's a decision not to deal, for example, with the history that Du Bois and Douglas and Wells and all those folks are raising, and the philosophical claims about justice that come out of that. So you, know, you can do your extraction, but then let's have an extraction from dark town. Let's have an extraction from you know, the voices behind the veil, and not just those who are ignoring people of color historically in the country, and also ideologically in terms of what their voices are saying about justice. I mean, to the degree that I am a critical race theorist, obviously I'm draw drawing on social science background. And so a lot of the questions I ask are causal in nature, or, you know, what, what are the sources of, of oppression that, sure. that we have to deal with if we're trying to achieve a just society? And then you, you, through that approach, you come through systems of domination, whether it's, whether it's capital, patriarchy, or white supremacy, the ones I focus on most. But it seemed to me that you wouldn't necessarily need that approach philosophically but even if you ask the question you asked about half an hour ago is, how is the world experienced yes. by people in certain bodies? Sure. Whether those bodies are gendered, whether those bodies are raised. Sure. If you take that, you still would have to deal with a question of justice that is different than the ones that we see. In of Facebook. course. Of course, yes. Yes, so this, this is the thing that the way, the, and there's a well-known philosopher woman called Honora O'Neill who recently got her, I think she was, was she made a baroness or something? Anyway, she had, what I think is a really crucial distinction, she draws a line of demarcation between abstraction as such and idealizing abstractions. And what she says that in mainstream philosophy, and a focus that's on gender but can be applied to race, the tendency has been to abstract in such a way that you ignore oppression, you present these abstractions as neutral and nonpartisan, but in fact the way you have chosen to abstract is biased by your need to avoid oppression. And the, what, what I think is a straightforward example is the following example that I've used in my work. Considering two, consider two abstractions, liberal democracy and white supremacy. These are both abstractions in the sense that a lot of different kinds of states could count as liberal democratic, a lot of different kinds of systems could be counted as white supremacists. If we look, look across the colonial world as against sort of independent nations, etc., etc. Now, suppose you ask the question, we're doing political philosophy. Which abstraction are we going to use for our historical characterization of the United States? And for mainstream political philosophers, there's no contest, there's no competition. Liberal democracy is abstraction. But the problem with liberal democracy as an abstraction for an accurate historical characterization of the US is it ignores the subordination of women of, of people of color. It ignores the fact that for long periods of time, your black people didn't even have the vote. And even now with the sort of decision that we've had in you know, the Shelby decision and in the pattern of disfranchising blacks in areas where they're likely to pose a threat to the existing order, you don't even have full disfranchisement now. Carol Anderson has um, written, written on this problem. So the more accurate historical abstraction about the U.S. is this is a white supremacist state. 
And that should not be controversial because, I mean, the evidence is all there. And yet white political philosophers refuse, almost it seems on principle, to consider this as an abstraction, as an appropriate abstraction. So you get the argument that philosophy deals with abstractions, you guys want to bring us down to empirical stuff, you're in the wrong field, go talk to sociologists and say that that's what you want to do. And you know, the response should be no, we want to talk to you. And the point we want to make to you is that your abstractions are not innocent. Your abstractions are not theoretically uncommitted. Your abstractions are not neutral. You have chosen to abstract in a particular politically partisan fashion. You have chosen to ignore the overarching abstraction of white supremacy, which is clearly a more accurate abstraction in characterizing the US historically than the ones you have actually chosen to deal with in your work. But I say that's more a manifestation of white supremacy in the academy and not just in philosophy. So there's been arguments in the last 20 years in political science about what counts as a democracy, particularly among people who study comparative politics. And I had a colleague at the University of Chicago who's now at NYU, a very senior, well-thought-of comparativist, who came up with the most narrow possible definition of what democracy is. Does it, are there elections? Are there elections? <laughs> where there is a chance um, for, you know, where the, where the outcome is uncertain. And the snarky part of me just said, well, Chicago hasn't been there for very long. It's <laughs> <laughs> when a black man runs. <laughs> but the question was, oh, in theory, there, 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 there could be a different outcome. But the serious question I said is, why don't you count the levels of participation by even who's eligible to vote? Of course. And his answer was, and I'm quoting, then we wouldn't be able to count the United States as a democracy. Okay, so that's really the starting point. That's not the conclusion, that's the starting point. Mm -hmm. And you then define your terms to make sure that that starting point is affirmed. And, and this yes. is an empirical game theorist, political scientist who is not unaware of, is, I'll, be, I'll be more generous and more accurate by saying is conversant in social theory, but the ideological... The ideological commitments run so deep. Yeah. You cannot frame things in that way. And the consequences are extraordinarily important because that definition then gets picked up by NGOs, it gets of picked course. up by the United Nations, of it gets course. picked up by the mainstream of, of, sure. of the academy, the United States and, and Europe. And it's all driven by a desire to ignore the oppression of black people mm -hmm. and others, yes. and for that matter, women as well, sure. for half this country's history, sure. in order to be able to, to, to codify yes. the United States as yes. a democracy. You need this category, so do whatever is necessary without your definitions, your frameworks, to make sure that this category is then in front. I mean, I actually thought that the reason they, the way that they code it is either you are or you are not a, a democracy, and it's, since it's multidimensional, why, why oh, yes, yes, make sure. it more sense to have it on, at yes. least on a continuum? Sure. There's a range, and, yeah, sure. and I thought it was methodological reasons that there's a lot mm -hmm. of things we can do mathematically if it's a binary Oh, one or zero, as opposed to a continuum. But no, it was an ideological answer that then we have to think about the oppression of black people and maybe women, and we can't do that because it's American. I say it's a democracy, we know this. Okay, all right, yes, yes, yes. Instead of looking backwards, although that wasn't that many years ago, I mean, by that point I was a tenured professor, so it's not ancient history by any stretch of imagination. 
I don't think I've ever been bold enough to challenge. I'm not sure if I've been bold enough to challenge him. Even now? <laughs> no, without the untenure. Oh, without the untenure. Yes, yes, of course. Of course. Time. of course. I did get myself in trouble on these grounds without the untenure. <laughs> After you. <laughs> but let's, let's conclude by thinking about both as scholars and as people concerned with justice here and globally. What are the most promising avenues pursued? That's a really hard question. Well, this is in a sense a return to what I said earlier. The seriousness of the crisis that's affecting us, not merely in the US, but at the planetary level, has both an upside and a downside. The downside is obvious. Things could you know, go very bad very quickly, and we end up in a situation even worse than we are now. And particularly, you know, we're somewhat sheltered here. We can certainly complain about in this country. Nonetheless, in a rich first world nation, we're obviously you know, very privileged with comparison to the rest of the globe. And it's yeah. the people, as you said earlier, in sort of former colonized parts of the world, you think of those little islands that are you know, just going to be flooded completely. Little islands, Africa, the Amazon. Yes, yes. I mean, yes. There are people, what was it, some little village in Bolivia, they've been relying on a glacier for centuries and now the glacier is completely yeah. not their fault at all, you know, being sort of you know, a result of carbon dioxide emissions from countries hundreds of thousands of miles away, but, would they bear no responsibility for well, it? And I am not good with the coal, the use of coal, for example, in places like India. But it's hip hypocrisy of the highest degree for the U.S. and the United Kingdom to tell China, India, you can't do what we did to become That's rich. That's right, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> We've got it. We got, we got it. We got it. Fa fa famous land. We stole it fair and square, and mm -hmm. we're going to hold on to it. Yes, yeah. sure, sure. Yeah, so, you know, both, as I say, sort of very serious possibilities, things getting worse, but also for that very reason. If you think of the number of kids who came out on this demonstration last week, in a sort of a recognition in that generation, planet is in danger, can you mobilize that idealism? Can you mobilize that sense of the unfairness of the whole thing? Can you, as I say, combine it with a appeal to certain peoples, because some people are going to lose, but mm -hmm. certain people's group interests, those who are sort of lower echelons, you know, of the hierarchy. Can you win those folks over, in some cases, like in the US, can you win them away from holding on to their whiteness, so that, you know, you're sort of appealing to an interest that, you know, does not involve their retaining their sort of hegemonic racially superior position in the new order. That is something that they would have to give up. That's the challenge I think activists are going to have to face. Some combination of moral suasion, appeal to justice, and also the attempt to activate people's group interests with a vision of a different kind of world in which the majority of the population do much better than they're doing now. And I think that is precisely the hope is that particularly young people and old people have to tell, stop telling them what's possible, what's not yes, possible. Sure, sure. And as we know, young people don't listen to that very much. Well, In any case, way. no, and no. And they're right. Sure. But that young people, I think, have come to a conclusion. Because I think even our generation of activists had the belief that the world was bad. Sure. But we didn't think it was fundamentally broken at every level no, in the no, same sure. way sure. that I think young people today think yes. that the planet's broken, our individual lives are broken, the society's broken, sure. our politics are broken, sure. and therefore we're open to alternatives. Yes, yes, yes. And we certainly have a right-wing version of those alternatives. Mm -hmm. 
in the both first world and in the global south. Sure, yes. That is a company to those who say, I'm not giving up anything. Nothing whatsoever. Whether it's white supremacy, sure. whether my privileges as a sure. member of the high bourgeoisie, I'm not sure. giving up anything. No. When to unite people around a racial or an ethno-national project, and you know, basically screw those who are excluded by that. And we'll buy our way out of climate change. Sure, yes. Because we have another planet in waiting. Or they have their hideout in, if you saw those stores in New Zealand, or their survival bunker up in the Rockies or whatever. Which is not going to work for those masses of people who support them. No, sure. And that's sure. what we have to convince yes. people. That we need a total change, and that's the only future, maybe for us, but certainly for our children and grandchildren. That's the thing. And you know, part of the appeal, I think, and as again a social scientist, you would know this, in terms of interests. Interests are sometimes defined in terms of not merely one's immediate family, right. but one's kids as well. Yeah. So you're appealing to people, do you want your kids and your grandkids to grow up in a world that is maybe not even like this, but worse? And that's a real possibility. Yes. Uh, at this point, even governmental institutions are trying to tell us. I think so, yes, yes. Well, so thank you so much. This has been thank a great conversation. Thank you for the interview, Michael. Also follow us on Twitter at Race Capitalism to find out more on what's happening with the project.